This morning's reading is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, in the Church Bibles, page 720, page 720, Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Sovereign Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we see more clearly the salvation that you have planned and transform us so that our lives, we would live our lives in the light of it. Amen. Uh, We need to ask what it is that this passage, Isaiah 35, is about. What's it saying? And to do that, we need to look at the context. Chapter 35 comes at the end of eight chapters which form a self-contained section in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Those of you who are following the reading plan will have begun that section on Friday with chapter 28, assuming that is that you're up to date with the reading plan. Uh, But in any event, over the course of the next week, you will see that in chapters 28 to 35, Isaiah alternates between warnings of disaster and promises of God's assistance and comfort. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the historical background of that now. If you would like to read more about that, you can in the appendix to the reading plan. For this morning, just remember this. At the time all of this was written, both the northern Israelite kingdom, the one variously called Israel, Samaria, or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom, 
the one with its capital at Jerusalem, were under tremendous political and military pressure. And Isaiah prophesied that the northern kingdom would be destroyed, and it was, and that the southern kingdom would would be devastated, and it was. And in that context, he warned the Israelites about both their attitudes and their behaviour. And in particular, in this section of his book, he warns about the reliance on Egypt. In other words, relying on one of the great powers of the age, Egypt, against the other great power, Assyria. In fact, he warns about relying on anyone or anything other than God. I could give many examples of that, but listen to this from the start of chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Disaster is coming, said Isaiah, but there's no use looking to people for salvation. The only person you can look to is God himself. And Isaiah starts by looking at the situation, the historical situation in which he was living. But as you go through from Isaiah 28 to 34, you'll see that although he starts with that situation, he moves on to the bigger picture. He effectively moves to generalities applicable not just to his people of his time, but to all people in all times. Just take this from chapter 34. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that's in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. The language is apocalyptic, at least in the popular sense. It isn't just the Israelites of Isaiah's day against whom disaster is threatened. Isaiah indicates that God will bring disaster on all those who uh, reject him. And Isaiah's keen to stress that the threat does indeed come from God himself. This comes from chapter 28, 28 verse 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. You see, what was happening to the Israelites was not an accident. It was ordained by God. The Israelites thought they were fighting the Assyrians, but their real enemy was God himself. The disaster that was coming on them was God's judgment. And Isaiah is saying that God will likewise bring judgment on those who reject him. What was happening was a microcosm of a bigger picture. But 
amid all of these prophecies of judgment, there are constant references to God's peace and to God's blessing. In fact, in this part of Isaiah, every single prophecy of disaster and judgment is followed by a promise of God's blessing. Every single one. Uh, I could give many examples, obviously, but take a couple from chapter 28. Chapter 28 opens with another denunciation of the northern kingdom. But immediately having given that, Isaiah moves on and says this. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Blessing is promised to a remnant of God's people. And then what about the southern kingdom? Well, Isaiah says that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. But immediately having said that, he then says this. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So for this remnant, these people who rely on this cornerstone, there's going to be blessing rather than judgment. What Isaiah has done in chapters 28 to 34 is to paint a picture of God intervening in the world. Intervening to bring judgment, yes, but also to bring salvation. And Isaiah recognises that that's happening in his day, but what's happening in his day is only an example of a much bigger picture. In fact, it prefigures the far greater acts of God in judgment and salvation that are going to follow. And Isaiah points out that all of this follows from God's justice and righteousness. This comes from chapter 32, 32 verse 16. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. And what will the consequence of that be? The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest, listen to this bit, though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, judgment, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free salvation. What Isaiah is saying is that God's righteousness leads to judgment, but for his people it also leads to salvation. And that brings us on to today's passage, to Isaiah chapter 35. 
Now, I suggest that if you haven't already, and I notice a lot of you have already, but if you haven't already, I suggest you have that passage open in front of you. Uh, If you don't, I think you will find what follows quite difficult to follow. It's on page 720 of the Church Bibles. While you're looking that up, I remind you that we are looking here at poetry. We shouldn't look to it for literal, factual descriptions, nor should we look to it for geographic or historical precision. What it's doing is conveying an idea using very vivid imagery. And the imagery used in chapter 34-5 is primarily the imagery of the Exodus, You remember that centuries before Isaiah's time, Moses led the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, through the desert, and into the promised land. And of course, having come from slavery, as the people left, they rejoiced at what was happening to them, as Psalm 105 puts it. The Lord brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. And the the overarching message of chapter 35 is that God is going to do something analogous to that in the future. Indeed, something that will far surpass the uh, original exodus. So with that in mind, let's take a look at it. Verse 1, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Do you see the image? It's the image of barren places, of the desert bursting into life and rejoicing at this life and, and, and in what's going on. But, but what specifically is it that that rejoicing is about? Go back to verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. In the original, what it actually says is, the desert and the parched land will be glad of them. But it doesn't say who the them is. I think if we think for a moment, we might guess, and we'll come back to it in any event, but for the moment, just remember that in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the whole of creation is eagerly awaiting the revelation of God's salvation. And Isaiah is talking about that revelation, about the revealing of God's salvation, And what he's saying is at that time, the whole of creation will be fulfilled. Creation will be seen in all of its glory. So will the people, the mysterious them, look at that glory of creation? Well, no, they won't. Or at least they will look beyond it. Look at the end of verse 2. They, that's the same as the them in verse 1, will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The people will see the glory of creation, but look through it to the creator. And, and, and why in particular is that? Well, because God will come. Uh, second half of verse 4. 
your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Note again that link between retribution, judgment, and salvation. God will come to put the world right. And what will then happen? Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Those who are blind will see the glory of God. Those who are deaf will hear of the glory of God. Those who cannot express joy will leap and shout for joy. They will leap and shout for joy because of what God has done, and in particular, because of God's provision. Second half of verse 6. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling streams. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And having painted that picture... Isaiah then returns to the Exodus theme. Verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The image is of this renewed desert, this desert full of life with a road running through it. And the language implies it's elevated so that it can be seen for miles around The way of holiness, the way of sanctification, the way of purity. And who will be travelling on it? Well, first of all, let's look at who won't be there. Second half of verse 8. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Uh, The word unclean is taken from the Mosaic law. It's not primarily to do with moral purity. Someone who is unclean is someone who has not availed themselves of God's means of being pure in his eyes. And fools? Uh, Fools are not the somewhat dippy people. That's not what it's talking about. In the Bible, fools are those who are culpably spiritually blind. And Isaiah is saying, those kinds of people will not be journeying on this way of holiness, this road. Uh, Nor, fortunately, will anything that can hurt anybody, verse 9. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. So that's the negative What about the positive? Who will be there? End of verse 9. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. Who will be there? Those rescued by God, those redeemed by God, those who God has made clean, those who God has made spiritually sighted. That's who will be there. So just think of the image, the image of the renewed desert, this road with God's people streaming along it can be seen for miles around. And where are they going? 
They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Zion is the hill in Jerusalem on which the temple was built. And the temple, of course, symbolized the presence of God. Where does this way of holiness go? It goes into the presence of God. And that's where the people of God are going. And we're told that as they enter the presence of God, sorrow and sighing evaporate. People enter the presence of God with joy. They are overwhelmed with joy. It says here, gladness and joy will overtake them. Uh, The phrase that translates could equally be put the other way around. Indeed, perhaps should be. They will overtake gladness and joy. Normal gladness and joy will be left behind. As people enter into the presence of God, everything else will be as nothing compared with the joy of that presence. Do you see what this passage is fundamentally about? It's about the triumph of God in the salvation of his people. That's what it's about. Now, Isaiah doesn't say when all of that will happen. He doesn't say how it will happen. In fact, if you look closely, he doesn't really say what will happen. He doubtless didn't know, and nor do we. But we do have one big advantage over Isaiah. We've got the New Testament. When I quoted Isaiah 28, the passage about the precious cornerstone a few minutes ago, I suspect a number of you thought of Jesus, and rightly so. Because, of course, both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul identify Jesus as that cornerstone. And then again, when I quoted verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened, etc., I suspect a lot of you thought of Jesus. And again, rightly so, because Jesus gave sight to the blind. He enabled the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk. And do you remember when John the Baptist's disciples came to him and basically said to him, well, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? He drew attention to these things he was doing and alluded to verse 5. You see, Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. Now, of course, he did not completely fulfill it. I suspect we'd all be a trifle disappointed if we were told that all of this had happened in the past. But that's not the case. The fulfillment began with Jesus's incarnation, but it has not been completed by that. Jesus explained that he would return, he will return, to complete the fulfilment. And his life, his death, and above all, his resurrection, act as guarantors of that fulfilment. So that leaves one final question, important one for us, which is this. As we await that fulfilment, how should we behave? How should we respond? 
Now, many valid answers can be given to that. But this passage points to the overarching issue. Those of you who've been following this sermon very closely may have noticed that as I was running through chapter 35, I left out verses 3 and the first half of verse 4. Take a look at it now. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. In the original, that simply says, behold your God. What should we do as we await the fulfillment? We should focus on God. We should look to God. We should remember that God will come to fulfill his promises. Verse 3 is quoted in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. It's quoted in a passage, a short passage, in which the author commences by telling us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's appropriate because, of course, Jesus said that he who has seen Jesus has seen God the Father. So if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are indeed beholding our God. And that's appropriate. Indeed, it's necessary that we should do so. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus, it is through faith in Jesus and only through faith in Jesus uh, that we can cease uh, to be unclean and fools in God's eyes. It's only through Jesus that we can travel the way of holiness. In fact... In a sense, Jesus is the way of holiness, to push the analogy. It is through faith in Jesus that we are redeemed. So if we want to be among the redeemed people of God, the ones travelling the way of holiness of which Isaiah speaks, if we want to enter God's presence and have that everlasting joy, then we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen.